0: have in this situation of insecurity, if elections are or organized, it will be a selection.
1: And to add to it, you said probably uh, everything that needs to be said. It's just the resilience of this population that really uh, wants to uh, uh, see democracy uh, uh, succeed. And uh, today they showed clearly that they will not be participating and any selections that uh, uh, the core group or the international community would like to put up in their face. They are going to uh, resist and wait for the uh, moment, the real moment where they see uh, uh, the emergence of this democracy, the development of the country, where they start thinking for them because like we presented to you, you are close to 45% of the population uh, and, and hunger situation. So until they see that we reach out to them, we start thinking about them, talking about them, showing them ed- the road to education, the road to housing, you will not see uh, a real participation of this population. They will be watching from the side and let everyone uh, uh, collapse uh, unilaterally because today the failure of AT is the failure of the international community and the core group that have been putting billions of dollars and uh, not showing nothing for, for it, while the Lavalas movement, that when it was elected in 1990 with a very little budget, we saw the presentation and saw how we, we can build this country together.
0: We're out of time. We would like to thank the Haiti Action Committee for making this sound available to share with you. You can reach Haiti Action Committee by going to HaitiSolidarity.net. Today's show was edited by Sojourner Truth assistant producer Alicia Vargas. Thank you, Alicia. We would like to also thank today's engineer Gary Baca. please stay tuned for democracy now sojourner truth will be back on the air tomorrow and if you'd like a copy of today's show please contact the pacifica radio archives thank you for listening you all please remember to stay safe this is your host margaret prescott
2: You're listening, you're listening, you're listening, you're listening. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to sound like a broken record, but you are listening to KBOO, Portland, Oregon, 90.7 FM. Listen sponsored. Now become a member now. Become a member not only because everything you hear is straight, everything you hear is delayed, everything here is great. But we also want you to become a member because we want you to get in there and Put your shoulders next to the wall like we're doing. Help pay some of them electric bills, some of our toilet papers, our napkins, our portable plates, portable knives and forks. But better than that, even for the staff, the guys are working hard here at KBOO, Portland, Oregon, 90.7 FM on your dial. And this is Screaming Jay Hawkins telling you why you got to do it. You got to do it not because it's an order, not because it's mandatory. Not because it's a must, but it's because this is the only place where you're hearing the right stuff. You're hearing the truth, you're hearing the good sound, and you're digging people who knows what it's all about. So pick up on a few things and lay down some of them other things and just dig KBOO, Portland, Oregon, 90.7 FM on your dial. And remember, I said so. i screaming Jay Hawking. I ain't walking, I'm talking. I'm, talkin'. I'm squawking. Become a member now! Become a member of KBO. Portland, Oregon, 90.7 FM on your dial. I'm about to sign off. Bye. bye.
3: Have you been thinking about furthering your involvement with KBOO? The annual election is coming up in September, and that means the Board of Directors are recruiting for new members. The nominating committee will hold virtual informational sessions on Wednesday, July 20th at 7 p.m. and Tuesday, July 26th at 5.30 p.m. For more information and to obtain a meeting link, go to kboo.fm boardinfo. That's kboo.fm boardinfo.
4: is officially here, and with it comes our annual With Good Reason summer reading list. We've got mothers
3: and daughters. I can feel the love that just pours through the book. Spiritual seekers.
5: Anybody who wonders about the sacred, who asks, how can I be spiritual in this seemingly modern secular society, might want to pick up this book.
4: And so much in between. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, we're filling your bookshelves. Archina Pathak says she mainly reads from three categories, books related to her work, oldies she loves to reread, and new stuff written by people she cares about. Pathak is a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, and she's here to recommend one book from each of her favorite categories. Archina, the first book you're recommending really isn't a new one at all. This is a speech that was actually written but never given back in 1936.
3: Yes, it is. Um, The first book I'm recommending is Annihilation of Caste by B.R. Ambedkar. And it's a tough read because as a South Asian, Hindu American um, of the Savarna castes, of the higher castes, it forces me to really examine my own caste privilege and think about the ways in which that has shaped my politic as a Hindu, uh, as an Indian woman, as a brown person in the United States. This man was supposed to deliver this speech at a conference
4: of the Society for the Breakup of the Caste System, but it was considered too inflammatory to be delivered even to that group.
3: Yeah, it's interesting because I think that, you know, Ambedkar had a vision for India that was so intertwined with both the eradication of colonialism but understanding that the eradication of colonialism wasn't the only root of oppressive violence in that society and so he he had a vision that explored and examined the ways in which indian society itself was organized around an oppressive system that of the caste system and he he was quite vocal about an imagining of India and a critique of India that that shook up even the most liberal of its of its population. Um, and I think part of it was complicated because Gandhi, who was also working so hard towards the eradication of colonialism, was leaning into the Hindu tenets as ways of enforcing revolution. And resistance, right? So Ambedkar coming in and saying that very doctrine itself has its own poison, that that shook the society up. So Ambedkar was actually
4: criticizing Hinduism itself, which was just a bridge too far for many.
3: There's really no way to separate out caste from Hinduism, and we have to think about that caste has been used as a structure of oppressive violence in India. And sure, I can say, and I do say, not my Hinduism. As soon as we start doing that, we got to start looking at how that liberal bent is blinding us to the fact that a lot of systems, there is no system that I can think of that hasn't been weaponized for violence, right? If I just accept it blindly, then I am complicit in its violence.
4: And Kandi noted that while the elimination of the caste system is the best way forward he defended hinduism and he said you know let's not look at religions by their worst adherents let's look at all the world's religions by their most and best adherents
3: right you know and this is the thing like you know i was raised in a family of freedom fighters right both my grandfathers met and fought with gandhi ji my sense of social justice in the United States is rooted in, in the trainings of Satyagra. Like that's what I read to learn how to be a justice warrior in the US, right? So this book makes me grapple. I would like to say that we could take the worst of a religion and put it off in a little box and tie it up and put it away. <laughs> um, but while it's still in play, I don't think we can. What I realized was that I am a more faithful Hindu because of my ability to grapple with and read Ambedkar. He helps me see why I do and don't choose my religious tenets. So if I can read about my spiritual journey from its most violent place and figure out how I live in it, then there's a a solidity to that.
4: Another book that you're recommending is a novel, and this one is set in Oakland, California. Tell me about that.
3: Yes. This is Mistress of Spices by Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni. And I love all of Devakaruni's work. She's a brilliant writer, but Mistress of Spices holds a special place in my heart. It is one of the most sensual novels I've ever read. Like I experience it with all five of my senses. It's the story about a woman who runs a spice shop in Oakland, California. And without giving too much away, um, many members of the South Asian diasporic community come to her spice shop and while they, they shop for the spices they need to do their cooking, they also share their lives with her. And just the description of the spices, the, the explanation of the scents and the sounds and the tastes. And I, it just, it just transports me back to so many family kitchens, um, when we cooked and ate together.
4: And there's so much mysticism and magic also involved, where she is using spices
3: individually to touch and heal a variety of people who come in. Yeah, and I, and I think the thing that's most poignant for me about that book is I, I didn't know it at the time, but I now realize it. My family used spices as ways to heal me as a child who walked in multiple worlds it may not always have felt that way to me as a kid because it was just confusing. And like, am I Indian? Am I American? You know, I came to this country in the early 1970s. The South Asian population wasn't um, as strong or as visible at the time. And so I felt very alone, Um, but there were ways in which the smells and the touches and the tastes and the scents and, and all of that did envelop me. So at least when I came home, that was steady and clear and consistent. Um, and it, it, I, it, I think we all have to get to adulthood to realize how much those experiences of our childhood saved us. What do you mean
4: my parents used spices? Do you mean that because they cooked with traditional spices and that was always the backdrop of family meals that, that enveloped me in my culture? Or do you mean they were deliberately using certain spices to evoke something in you.
3: Both and, right? So we definitely cooked with yeah. traditional foods, you know, cooked traditional foods with traditional spices, but we used spices in the ways that they are used in traditional, like Ayurvedic, for example, techniques. So like everyone is all about their golden milk lattes these days, but I've been drinking mm-hmm. golden milk lattes since I was a kid, right? <laughs> That's actually a, right. a pretty uh, ancient um remedy for for coughs and and sore throats and so you know if we said that we had a cough or our throat hurt then my mom made us haldi milk uh, haldi is turmeric um and you know maybe didn't love the taste of it but it was a saucerful and it was like well drink it down while it's you know while it's hot and then just go to bed you'll feel better or if it was hot outside you know remembering my parents um using a particular kind of metal bowl with ghee on it and rubbing the soles of my feet to, to pull the heat down, to, to cool my body off, right? Like we lived that life. What is the last book that you want to share with us? That's a great question. I've got to pick one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. I You know, reading has been my escape my whole life. I'm always reading a lot of books at once. So there's two that I'm like smack dab in the middle of. One is uh, Julietta Sings' The Breaks, Um, Julietta Singh is a local Richmond author um, and the book The Breaks is a is a letter to her to her child and um, I mean I think it's exquisite for any mother and child to read that book but it's just even more poignant because I can hear her voice and see their faces and it, it grapples with this question of being brown and finding our ways through the world. It's maybe a letter I wish An adult had written for me as a young brown child in this country trying to figure out what that meant what does she say to her daughter so much (laughs) so much right she she talks about helping her daughter find her way in the midst of like of a backdrop of a society that is always going to try and pigeonhole her (laughs) i can feel the love that just pours through the book Um, i think that's what's so incredible for me I think she's showing her child the utter strength and beauty of vulnerability. You know, don't don't let it, don't let the world steal that from you. Any guilty pleasures also on your night table? So look, since I was a kid, it's been pretty much anything by Nora Roberts. <laughs> and she writes in trilogies, which I love. So it's like you get to know these characters and they hang out for like three books. So there's like a good relationship soap opera investment for me. I get to know these characters and kind of fall for them. And her books are very familial and relational. So she has these big, beautiful families with all these like intergenerational complexities and everyone loves each other a lot. And it's just really feel good. It, It is really my kind of like, you know, lifetime or hallmark kind of channel version of book reading. Actually,
4: I've never read Nora Roberts, and I think I might just give it a shot. Archinopathic, thank you for sharing your book interests with me and with good reason.
3: Thank you so much for asking me. It's wonderful to be able to talk about the joy that books bring me and to share with you some of my, my personal favorites. <laughs>
4: Archen is a professor of gender, sexuality, and women's studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. In 1970, the Coretta Scott King Award joined the Caldecott and Newbery medals as one of the greatest honors given to children's and young adult books. Each year, the award recognizes outstanding books that reflect the African American experience Rosalie Kaya is a professor of English at Norfolk State University. She's worked with the Coretta Scott King Award and shares some of her favorite past winners. Oh, wow. (laughs) You know,
0: (laughs) I like all of these books, I really do. Um, There's a book by Clara Hartfield, and the title of that book is A Few Red Drops. This was awarded the Coretta Scott King Book Award in 2019.
4: What age group is that for?
0: This one I would do for YA. So this book, The Few Red Drops,
4: is about the Chicago race riots of 1919. You know, in the 1919 Chicago race riot, 38 people died, more than 500 were wounded, two thirds of the casualties were black, a third were white, and this was touched off by the stoning death of one young black man who was rafting with friends on the so-called black part of the beach nearby when they drifted onto the so-called white part of the beach. Would you tell me about that beach and that young man?
0: Well, I, I did my doctorate um, at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. This part of the country where this happened, where the little boy was stoned, that was uh, up around Lake Michigan. And as you said, he and a few of his friends drifted off into the white section of the beach and they were attacked by a mob of white men. And of course, uh, when the, the surviving little boys got back to their home, to their community and they talked about it, and that's when everything just went crazy, went wild. The author, Clara Hartfield, does extensive research. This book is, as we say in the vernacular, the bomb. She she has illustrations. She has um, a picture of the mayor of that city where this happened. It's just an awesome, awesome book. As you can see, I'm just into it. (laughs) I love it. I use it in my class. And the students, you know, get really wrapped up in it because people don't know why this a stone throw would ration off something like this.
4: There's another popular book that won the Coretta Scott King Award fairly recently called The Watsons Go to Birmingham. That was roughly based on an historical incident, but it's a fictionalized account of it. Tell me why you love this book. I love
0: that book because I love the author. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The reason I like his, uh, his writing is because it's light, but it's heavy. Right. In other words, he has humor there, but he gets to the point. And the protagonists in The Watsons Go to Birmingham, as you said, it's based on, but it's not about, the Birmingham March and that kind of thing. The protagonist is a preteen, I guess, going on teenage. And um, he's a little bit much for his family in terms of his behavior. So they feel that the way we can calm him down is send him, as we say in the vernacular, down the country. So <laughs> when you live up north and you send somebody down the country to your grandma, That means that, you know, when you come back, you're going to be all right. And so (laughs) so they, they take this trip down the country, a car trip down the country. And as they're moving further from up north to down the country, they begin to see how things change, how they can't stop and have a meal, how they can't eat at a certain place where they can't use the toilets at a certain place. Mm. And so when they actually get to grandma's house, this is when things begin to start. And you can kind of like see this teenage boy coming to his thing, you know, where he was a big shot when he was up north. And now he's seeing how, you know, you have your place and you must be aware that this is your place. That's sad that you have to have your place. You know, (laughs) that is just so sad. Um, And the gist of the story is that his whole behavior has changed by spending that summer in Birmingham. So what Christopher Paul Curtis does is to put some sprinklings of the Birmingham movement in the book, but it is not about
4: the movement. We have time for one last recommendation by you. And I know that you wanted to bring up for younger readers a book written by a friend of mine, Margot Lee Shetterly. I love it. I love it. And this is the book that she wrote for young people after she wrote her adult book, Hidden Figures.
0: Yes. So this one is like for ages four through eight. And this is a well, well documented book as well as, you know, for children. I think she did a wonderful job. Young children, especially young little girls, need to know that they matter and that they can do things. And yeah. and we need to start at that point. These four women helped NASA launch into the future. And maybe little girls didn't know anything about this. It's an awesome read, and I would certainly put this at top of one of my lists as well. And before I let you go, what are you reading right now? Oh, well, now I'm reading the 1619 Project. Right? <laughs> yes, uh, and I'm loving it. I'm loving it, and it's just a mixture. It's not just about that. It's There's poetry. There are, of course, essays. 1619 Project, love, love, love.
4: Rosalie Kaya, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason.
0: You're quite welcome. Thank
4: you for having me. Rosalie Kaya is a professor of English at Norfolk State University. Our next guest brings us four books about cross-cultural identity and religion in America. Kyle Garten-Gundling is a professor of English at Christopher Newport University.
5: The first one that I think we can talk about is a book called American Dervish by Ayad Akhtar. It's one of my personal favorites that I've read in probably the last five years.
4: And tell me about Ayad Akhtar. Who's he, the author?
5: So Ayad Akhtar is primarily known as a playwright. He wrote a play called Disgraced that was very successful a few years ago. American Dervish is his first novel. So there was a lot of people wondering, how is he going to do with his fiction debut? Let me tell you, he knocks it out of the park. This is a wonderful novel. It's an intimate portrait of a young immigrant from Pakistan whose family lives in a Milwaukee suburb in the 1990s. And I find it to be a very moving coming of age story about him trying to discover his place in the world, his relation to his family, his culture, and his faith. So anybody who wonders about the sacred, who asks, how can I be spiritual in this seemingly modern secular society might want to pick up this book. It's a really fascinating reflection that has both culturally specific and I think transcultural resonances.
4: And it strikes me that it's such an easy glimpse into yet another community, trying to make it in America and dealing with how does my culture fit in.
5: That's right. And in this book, I think we see a lot of assimilation going on where the main character is parents are very secularized. They're in the health professions and religion is not a big part of their lives. It's actually through when the main character's mother has a friend who moves in with them, she is a Sufi Muslim who then becomes a kind of mentor figure to the main character, teaches him about the Quran, about the history of Muslim doctrine, and really gets him interested in the faith. And so it's actually outside the nuclear family that that spiritual influence comes in. The intertwining of faith and family relations is a very key aspect of this.
4: I wonder if there are any passages that you particularly like that you might want to share with us to give us a feel for this writer?
5: Sure. So there's a passage early on in the book where Hayat, the main character, is just starting to read Mina's copy of the Quran. So here we go. Here's the quote. The book's new binding cracked as I opened it. Inside, each page was like a work of art, covered on the left with a block of black Arabic text enclosed in a golden frame. On the right was the English translation. As I turned the thick pages, heavy like vellum, they released the crisp, pleasing odor of new paper. I looked down at the page. In the lamplight, the black letters pulsed against the yellow-white page." So in this passage, Hyatt is completely overcome with the beauty of the Quran, not because of the substance of its words, but because of the majesty of the physical presence of the book. And whether we're talking about a sacred text or not, I think that there may be some relatable aspects of this passage about just what it feels like to sit down with a really good book in your hands, to smell that pleasing book odor. All these physical experiences that I think have been kind of on the decline nowadays with the rise of electronic reading. I think this book is a very valuable way of kind of recovering some of those experiences. And that's one of the things that really exemplifies the kind of the beauty of the writing and also the relatability of the love of literature more broadly.
4: You're also recommending a lighter read that is a detective series about a former Buddhist monk who becomes a police officer in Los Angeles and then a sort of Sherlock Holmes detective there. Tell me about this book. What's the name?
5: That's right. So this book is called The First Rule of Ten. And in this case, Ten isn't just a number. It's actually the main character's nickname. So the main character is named Tenzing Norbu. And it's a five-book series. In each book, he kind of comes up with these rules for himself where he has these intuitions that he disregards at the beginning of the book, and then it gets him into trouble. And then by the end of the book, he comes away with some kind of life lesson. And so in this case, the first rule of Ten turns out to be something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, If you have a hunch that something doesn't feel right, don't ignore the hunch. You should acknowledge and investigate before something goes wrong later. To get to that lesson, he goes through a really sprawling plot that involves so many different things. It involves Uh, mysterious poisonings. It involves trees being gradually killed. It involves a kind of intellectual property con job where there's a a shady lawyer who tries to convince old artists to sue record companies for more uh, royalty money. And there's an Italian gangster, there's an Irish gangster. It gets a bit stereotypical, which I object to, but there's a lot of different Um, kind of traditionally detective plot elements in the book that end up getting reworked through this kind of Buddhist perspective because the main character is a former Buddhist monk and he uses Buddhist meditation to help him think and help him solve his crimes.
4: You actually study Buddhism, or you have. Do you think he gets it right in this series, the author? (sighs)
5: So that's a very tough question. I think for the most part, he does. It's a co-authored team, and the authors are not Tibetans themselves, but they've clearly done a lot of study of Buddhism. They've clearly consulted with a lot of people. They want to represent this character with dignity. They want to represent his religion fairly. Um, I think that the details about Tibetan philosophy and Tibetan art, they get pretty well. If there is one way that you might quibble with them, I just think it's the sheer fact that they use Tibetan Buddhism as a bit of a gimmick in the book. And the main character has some minor telepathic powers that he uses from time to time. So it's almost like turning him into a kind of minor Tibetanish superhero, which is a little bit weird and kind of stereotyping. Um, so that's, I think, what the main complaint would be. But they do try to represent the religion well, and they end up working it into a fairly good suspenseful mystery plot.
4: You've also got some nonfiction works that you are interested in. What are the nonfiction books that you'd like to share as summer reading?
5: So one of them is a book called So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijomo Oluo. This is a book that kind of takes a conversational approach as the title would indicate to talking about racial issues in the United States. And the reason that I wanted to highlight this book is that it came out in 2018 during a time when the Black Lives Matter movement was growing, was becoming more recognizable, and it was a very successful book at the time. But then a couple years later in 2020, when things really blew up in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, I think this book got somewhat overshadowed by some other books like The 1619 Project and How to Be an Anti-Racist and White Fragility. Uh, but, and those are great books too. But I think what is really noteworthy about Oluo's book, So You Want to Talk About Race, is that it takes a lot of pretty sophisticated concepts and makes them very clear and easy to understand, taking a conversational approach to walk the reader through these various racially fraught topics. And then speaking of having conversations about difficult topics, the other nonfiction book that I'm especially interested in is called Talking Across the Divide, How to Communicate with People You Disagree With and Maybe Even Change the World. And the author of that book is Justin